Welcome to the Talk Cocktail Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shackman. Think about the unexpected twists of fate that shape our lives. How many times have you stumbled upon a life-changing moment purely by accident? The party you almost skipped where you met your significant other or a lifelong friend. Or that time you got lost in a neighborhood only to find your future home. Consider the serendipity of sitting next to someone on a flight who would later become your boss. And in a more somber reflection, those who by sheer chance overslept or got stuck in traffic and missed their flight on September 11th. Life, despite our best efforts to make it organized, orderly, and linear, is anything but. It's the unpredictable and the improbable that often steer our futures. It reminds us of that old basketball adage that we miss 100% of the shots that we don't take. In a world where chaos and chance intertwine, our guest today, Brian Class, brings a unique perspective. With degrees from Oxford and now a professor of global politics at University College London, Brian is not just an academic. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, host of the award-winning Power Corrupts podcast, and a frequent guest in national and international media. His field research spans the globe, advising major politicians and organizations, including NATO and the European Union. In his new book, Fluke, Brian challenges our fundamental understanding of how the world works. He explores the role of small chance events in diverting our lives and changing everything. Fluke is a journey into the phenomenon of random change and the chaos it can sow shattering the neat and tidy storybook version of reality that we often cling to. In explaining this phenomenon, Brian delves into social science, chaos theory, history, evolutionary biology, and philosophy to offer a fresh look at why things happen. His book, Fluke, is an exploration of our world driven by strange interactions and apparent random events. It is my pleasure to welcome Brian Class here to the program to talk about fluke, chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it is a delight to have you here. In many ways, why everything we do matters, but in some ways, everything we do doesn't matter. Talk about that. Well, I, I think everything we do does matter. I mean, I, and I mean that quite literally. Um, you know, I open early on in the book. There's a a, a story um, that is set in a it's, a it's a true story set in a farmhouse in rural Wisconsin um, where a, a woman who has four young children snaps and has a mental breakdown and, and tragically decides to kill her, her four kids and then take her own life. And her husband comes home and finds the family dead. And the reason I'm talking about this story is because this is my great grandfather's first wife. And he eventually remarried to my great grandmother and, you know, the amazing thing is that I didn't know about this until I was in my mid-20s and my dad told me about it. And I, of course, bewildered to realize that I wouldn't have existed but for this mass murder 119 years ago. The more perplexing thing that makes you think is that you wouldn't be listening to my voice but for this mass murder uh, 119 years ago. So now it's affecting your life, too. And I think this is something that, like, of course, my great-grandfather's first wife could never anticipated producing a podcast episode 119 years ago or a, a radio show 119 years later. And yet here we are. And so I think this is the kind of stuff where the ripple effects may be short time scales, long time scales, but the ripple effects are always there. And I, I don't think there's any throwaway action 
um, that has no impact on the world. In many cases, we have no agency as these things evolve. I mean, you tell the story, and it's in, in the Atlantic excerpt from, from your book about Henry Stimson. Yeah, so this is the story that opens Fluke, and it's a, a story of a couple that goes to Kyoto, Japan. An American couple goes to Kyoto, Japan in 1926, and they fall in love with the city. They just find it utterly charming. And normally you'd think, okay, a vacation doesn't change history. But 19 years later, Henry Stimson ends up as the American Secretary of War. And the target committee, which is comprised mostly of generals, uh, decides that Kyoto is their top pick for where to drop the first atomic bomb in August of 1945. And Stimson, when he gets this memo, sort of springs into action and goes to meet with President Truman. He actually meets with him twice and convinces him to take Kyoto off the list purely because he has a soft spot for the city derived from his vacation 19 years earlier. And the second bomb is supposed to go to a place called Kokura. But when the bomber arrives, there's briefly this cloud cover. And so it circles and circles and eventually has to get diverted to the secondary target, which is Nagasaki. So you have you know hundreds of thousands of people living and dying between these uh, different cities because of a 19-year-old vacation and and a cloud. And I think you know we I think intuitively actually understand this is the way the world works because when we think about our own lives, there's all these little chance events that we can pinpoint. What's really really astonishing is to imagine the invisible ones. And this is where this term Kokura's luck comes in, because the people of Kokura, the intended bomb site of the second bomb had no idea for decades that they nearly were all incinerated. And so I think this is happening to us constantly. There are things where we're escaping catastrophe or we're potentially getting some massive benefit and we're completely blind to the dynamics because we can only see one future, which is the one that we actually inhabit in the way our lives unfold. And so that's the really, I think, bewildering part that that uh, comes out of this worldview. Not only bewildering, but a sense that we realize the limits of our own power that we think we have the world in an orderly way and that we have a sense of agency in it. But when we think about particularly these invisible events, we realize that there's an awful lot that we don't control. In fact, most of it that we don't control. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is that probably the most important things that determine my life trajectory, I had literally zero control over. So that was where I was born, when I was born, who my parents were, and what my brain was like. And, you know, those things are, are, I had literally no effect on any of those things. And they almost certainly dictated the majority of my life outcomes, right? I mean, if I was born, I do, I do research, for example, in Madagascar. And if I was born in rural Madagascar, where the average person makes $1.90 a day, I, I don't think we'd be talking. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff where there's a limit to how much we can control. And I, I have this statement throughout Fluke. Uh, it's riffing off this idea from Scott Page, a complex systems theorist, who says, uh, we control nothing, but we influence everything. And, you know, I, this is the kind of stuff where I, th I think it depends on how you think the world is supposed to work. So the way that we're told the world is supposed to work is we're supposed to control everything and determine our pathway through life. And if we don't get the exact pathway we want, then we should be upset. And I think if you start to relinquish a little bit of control and celebrate the influence you have, even though you don't have as much control, you start to accept the flukes a little bit more and you actually sort of enjoy the ride a bit more. And I found this, you know, for me, my worldview did really shift when I researched this book. I, I think about the world really differently from how I did three or four years ago. And I feel so much happier because of it, because I just, you know, I've just let go a little bit of trying to sort of live what I used to call a checklist existence with sort of the life hacks for everything. And, 
you know, sometimes stuff happens to me and I don't know why. And I just sort of enjoy the ride a bit more. And it, it allows you to focus on the things that you care about as opposed to trying to be a control freak in an uncontrollable world. Talk about how that lines up with human nature, particularly in the West, and the way we've grown up and and what we've learned and how we have to really go against that in some respects to get to this enlightened state that you're talking about. Yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as enlightened, but <laughs> I but I think you know th- th- there is a nice a nice side to this uh, worldview that flows out of the chaos. The the, the problems with um, Western modernity, in my ideas, or in my mind rather, are one is that we are told that we're in charge of everything and that we're the main character in our own lives and no one else really matters, right? So I think this I, I call this the, the delusion of individualism. And I think it's a it's a myth. I think it's something where our lives are sort of stitched together through a tapestry with a lot of different threads, many of which we're unaware of, right? Mine was partly stitched with this mass murder that I had no idea existed until I was in my mid-20s. And that aspect of it is is important to acknowledge. But I also think there's elements of this where, you know, I quote this philosopher named uh, Hartmut Rosa, who's a philosopher, a sociologist, and he says, you know, the, the sort of maxim of modern life is to accumulate as large a share of the world as you possibly can. And I think it's a I, I think it's a bad way to live. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to, you know, be comfortable in life and so on. And of course, we should strive for things we like. But I think this idea that you're just supposed to capture more and more of the world for yourself. To my mind, I've, you know, in, in, in writing this book, a lot of the things that I enjoy the most, I was thinking about the ideas while I was walking my dog or going camping. And none of those things had any status or money associated with them. And they were some of the best moments in our lives. I think I think when I talk to people, they also intuitively understand this, right? That we're like in this rat race in a lot of our daily lives where we're chasing stuff and status. And that's what the Western mentality and the sort of modern life is telling us to do. And I think when people say, like, what, what do they really find meaning in? It's often not those things. And so there's this juxtaposition between, like, the way that we intuitively get this, but then, like, the message of what society is supposed to tell us is, is a successful life. And I think the way you can reconcile those things is to understand the underlying dynamics of what, what are going on, what's going on is actually driven by chaos a lot more. It makes you accept, uh, I think, this this sort of viewpoint a little bit more easily. Does it also make you, though, shun responsibility? No, I think actually the opposite. I mean, it's really interesting. So some people, when they first encounter my ideas or they first start reading Fluke, they're, they're worried they're going to become nihilists. Yeah. Nothing matters, Right. And when I have the third part of the subtitle, why everything we do matters, I think the point that I'm making here is that you are constantly reshaping the world. I think it's the most empowering message imaginable. And I I, I can convince you of this, I think, with ironclad logic that you're going to change the world in one way or another, especially if you have children or are going to have children. Because the moment uh, a child is conceived, if it's a microsecond difference, a different person gets born, right? So if you stop to have a sip of coffee that day, a different person gets born. And that goes on and on the day before that and the day before that. Everything had to stitch together in exactly the right way for your kid to be your kid, right? And I think that's the kind of stuff where it's not like children uh, being produced has some sort of unique cause and effect. It's just the way the world is. And I think, you know, the, the, the other thought experiment that I think persuades a lot of people is I say, when you imagine traveling back in time, people are like, don't, you know, don't squish a bug. Don't talk to your parents because you might actually change history or change the future or even delete yourself from existence. And we accept that like these small changes can have profound effects in the future. Then when we get in the present, we just completely throw away that mentality. We don't think about the squished bugs or the conversations. We think all of that just gets washed out. 
So to my mind, if we are constantly reshaping the future with our actions, the responsibility is much greater because everything is important, right? So I, I feel like I have more responsibility now that I've thought about chaotic dynamics than in the past when I was told there's a difference between the signal and the noise and the noise is unimportant because that gives you the sort of license to not worry about a lot of stuff. I, I think we should be living deliberately in a way that is um, you know, tied to this, this responsibility of reshaping the future that we all, all get to be part of. How does this measure up or line up against science and technology, which is about predictability and consistency and, and absolutes? Well, I think the world of science and technology are, are wonderful. I also think that the uh, attempt for us to control the world has resulted in a more unstable environment than any human has navigated in history. And I'm not anti-science. I think we absolutely need to use science and technology to the, to the, to the maximum. But you know, when you think about the 21st century, it's a series of shocks because we tried to sort of create these straitjacket systems that try to contain a really complex world. And so, you know, the 21st century, in a nutshell, 9-11, the Iraq War, the financial crisis, the Arab Spring, the rise of Trump, Brexit, the pandemic, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine. I mean, how many calamities are happening on a regular basis now? We've engineered a society that is much more prone to flukes and to chance events than ever before. And that's because I think we have this hubris to believe we can control the world. So we optimize the world to its absolute limit. So the, the best way of explaining this is like, you know, our supply chains, for example, have no slack in them. And so when a gust of wind hits a single boat in the Suez Canal in 2021, it can wipe out $54 billion of economic productivity in, in an instant, which was never possible before because we used to have more slack in our system. So I think, you know, Science and technology can solve a lot of problems, but if we if we sort of worship at the altar of control and think that science and technology are the solution to everything, then, then we actually get a hubris that I think leads us down a dangerous path. One of the things science and technology has done, arguably, is create a world of greater complexity. Talk about that in this broader context, the fact that, that things are more complex today. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think we understand how the world works. And I don't mean this in some like sort of flippant way. I mean, I think that like there are a lot of systems that exist in modern life that we fundamentally do not understand. And, and one of the examples I briefly touch on in Fluke is uh, a guy who wasn't malicious. He was a, a trader in West London, and he wanted to just see if he could manipulate the stock market in, a, in an interesting way. So he was just sort of playing with things. And he wiped out like a trillion dollars of wealth in five minutes. Now, there was an audit done of why this happened and how it occurred. And after like two or three years of the SEC and other government agencies investigating, they couldn't really come up with an explanation. And it's because he was able to manipulate this algorithm that was used for high frequency trading and so on in ways that were just beyond the complexity of what a human brain can necessarily understand easily and sort of trace backwards. And so you know, I do worry about this, that we're creating systems that are more prone to not just shocks, but also inexplicable shocks. And also, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book a lot is that, you know, our brains are, de are, are designed for pattern detection. This is something that evolution has forged in us. But the patterns we used to have to discern were really straightforward, right? You know, rustling in the grass equals saber-toothed tiger, therefore run. Right. I mean, that's a simple cause and effect model. Trying to understand modern finance or like geopolitics our brain is just not equipped to deal with 8 billion interacting people in these unbelievably complicated systems. 
So I think that's where the systemic risk comes in, is that, you know, we imagine we can control these things, we assert some sort of uh, intervention into the system, and then there's unintended consequences. And I think the the lesson that I'm trying to push to people is that if we accept there's less control, then you have a little bit less optimization and a little bit more resilience. And the resilience is something that we should focus on more in modern life to avoid those black swan events that have blindsided us throughout the 21st century. It's interesting that we're trying to deal with some of this complexity by more complexity. In many ways, a lot of the the goals or the efforts that people lay out for AI are to try and deal with the effects of some of that complexity. And yet, you talk to scientists in, in the area today, and they will tell you that even they don't understand how it all works. Yeah, and AI is an interesting case because one of the things that's a problem is that a lot of our world runs on models where they look at past patterns as a way to predict the future, right? Now, if you've got a stable system, that's fine. But if the system is evolving and changing over time, it's a really big problem. And we all know the system's changing because you have things like, oh, there's a 100-year flood or a 100-year fire, but it's happening every three years now, right? And that's because the underlying dynamics of the climate have shifted. So the past pattern is no longer predictive of the future outcome. Now, the problem with AI is that it's built on training data from past outcomes, and the underlying causal dynamics are shifting faster than they ever have before in human history. Our world is changing faster than it ever has in human history. So if you embed a lot of systems into a procedure that basically assumes the past equals the future, you have created a world of systemic risk by design. And I'm not anti-AI. I think there's serious benefits that are going to be derived from it. But I do think that we have to have some limits to the understanding of how much we should rely on it for critical infrastructure and other things that make society function because of the problems I'm describing. But we're no better. Human beings are no better at pattern recognition than the AI. And and arguably, the AI is taking more history, more past patterns into account. Yeah. And in some ways that can be really good. So if you've got a stable system, like if you're trying to do uh, diagnoses, right, in a, in a medical context, there's no question AI is going to obliterate human diagnoses because, you know, a doctor might see 10,000 x-rays in his career and this, you know, the machine learning model will see 10 million. So it'll just get better. But I think the problem is that with AI, you don't understand the decision-making process always. And you also are operating at a speed that is difficult to counteract when uh, a sort of cascade happens where things break down. And so I think that aspect of, of, of society is that we're, we're told that speed is always good, right? And in some, in some contexts, it is. We want to have Amazon deliver the package, you know, as quickly as possible, fine. But I think in other contexts, speed can be dangerous if there are mistakes. And this is where, you know, like high-frequency trading is the example I, I come back to because it, it's so fast that our economies can be totally wrecked in a period of minutes before anyone can do a circuit breaker. Now they're starting to build some of these circuit breakers into the trading system, but AI is getting faster and faster and faster. At some point, I think there's going to be some, uh, this cat and mouse game is going to be a losing losing contest for all of us because the, the speed is going to be so great with some of these models and decision-making processes that we're not even going to know it's happened until it's too late. And I, I, I do worry about that sort of fetishization of if we can only be a microsecond faster, then everything will be better. Um, sometimes slow but stable is a better bet. Does speed in, in all these areas increase the potential, increase the number of flukes? And is there some inherent good in that? 
Well, I don't think there's inherent good in it because I think the the aspects of flukes are often destabilizing. Um, what what I would say is that speed makes it more likely that there will be contingency, which is a, a related idea, which is to say that a small change can have a big effect. And I think that that is something that is is absolutely clear about the way the world operates now. So, you know, it's slightly in the weeds, but I think that there's a really important point that I I, I try to highlight in fluke, which is that. All past humans lived in a world in which the uncertainty they navigated was in their day-to-day -day life and not the way the world worked, right? So like they didn't know where to get the next meal and they might get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, but like the, you know, the, the parents and children were going to live in the same world generation after generation and the dynamics of cause and effect were unchanging. We've flipped that world, right? And it's with speed as well. So like we can beckon Amazon to our houses in exactly the right hour and we can decide, you know, to go to Starbucks anywhere in the country and it ends up being the same coffee. So we've we've ironed out all the uncertainty in the day-to-day -day life or most of it, but we've created massive instability in how the world operates. So, you know, I, I sort of say it's a bad bet to have Starbucks unchanging while rivers dry up and democracies collapse. And I think that's the sort of peril of a, a really fast, complex world where you try to control it, but you're actually getting worse and worse over time at harnessing um, the, the benefits of some of these things that are tied to speed and technological advancement. And it's interesting because so many of the things, and you know, an AI is, is an example of that, but so many of the things that we're doing, particularly to try and gain speed and, 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 and operate more quickly in the world, are a poor attempt, I suppose, to try and have more control. Yeah, and I think this is something where, you know, there's there's a difference between systems that we fully understand and systems that we don't fully understand. So the economy is a system we don't fully understand. And even economists will acknowledge this, right? There's all sorts of unexpected things that happen all the time. There's fundamental debates about how to control inflation in the best way, et cetera. Systems that we do understand, you can optimize the absolute limit using technology and data. So my, my, my favorite example of this is moneyballing baseball. Baseball is a closed system where the same teams compete every year with the same rules, roughly. And, you know, there's sort of a set of outcomes that are possible. Like we know that the, you know, the Minnesota Vikings football team is not going to win the World Series. So there's like, there's a set of rules and a sort of set of constrained outcomes. So when you moneyball that system and when you use data to sort of optimize for performance, it works really well. I mean, it's so much so that it made the game a little bit boring because uh, it was so optimized. But it's a closed system, right? And so I think there are certain systems, like like with medicine as well, absolutely, we should optimize to the limit. I mean, if you can do anything with a cancer drug that's going to stop the cancer from spreading, you know, don't have some aspect of, oh, well, let's not try to control it. You absolutely should. It's the complex systems that are the bigger metastructure of our societies that we don't understand, where it becomes dangerous to imagine that we do understand them and therefore to decide yes, we're going to do this and put all our eggs in that basket. So I think it's useful to differentiate between systems that are well, well understood and systems that are poorly understood. And the degree of control you assert is proportionate to how much you think you understand the system. And how is evolution impacted in all of this? To what extent does the changing nature of human beings play a role? Well, I think the, the main thing about this, where I talk about evolution a lot in, in Fluke, is how our brains have evolved to be allergic to uh, actions that are described as being random. So we have a psychology that has overlearned pattern detection and is really immune to some explanation that says this is just random chance. And there's a whole series of reasons I talk about in the neuroscience and the evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology literature about this and why it's happened. But the point is that our, our brains are, are pattern detection machines. 
And so one of the issues is that when random things do happen, and they do, then we instead infer a cause and effect that's in a neat and tidy story. And that makes us misunderstand the world. So I think there's some stuff also where, interestingly, this is uh, differentiated by what kind of news we hear. So if you hear a positive uh, development in your life, like you won the lottery and it was random, people are pretty willing to accept that that might have been just arbitrary. There was no grand cause or anything like that. When people get bad news, they are almost universally immune from random explanations. And so, of course, cause and effect operates the same way, whether it's positive or negative news, but our brains have evolved to try to cope with a world of randomness by inferring rational reasons. And so, you know, I think there's some stuff where the way we navigate the world is is partly a byproduct of a brain that was forged by evolution to survive long enough to reproduce. And that's an arbitrary brain. So I think the way we make sense of the world is not always... 100% accurate, but it's important to recognize those cognitive biases because recognizing them is the first step to avoiding decision-making mistakes. I mean, we seem to be caught up forever in this battle between correlation and causality. Yeah, I mean, this is something where uh, there there are very difficult ways to, to go from correlation to causation. I mean, I'm a social scientist. I have a lot of skepticism of some of the modern social science models and their ability to um, accurately describe an extraordinarily complex world. But, you know, it's still worth trying, right? I think I think it's worth trying to deter, determine when there are patterns, because sometimes there are patterns and it's really, really useful to understand them. I think it's just sort of the, this, this aspect of, I don't think we're ever going to have perfect causation because I think, you know, what I was talking about with chaos theory previously, like I think with chaos theory, it's, a, it's an issue where when you think about it, there are an infinite number of causes. So why are we having this conversation? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that had to happen but one of them is a mass murder in Wisconsin in 1905, right? So when you think that way, there's there's not five or six variables in a model that explain an outcome. There's an infinite number of variables that explain an outcome. So I think causation is basically something we're never going to fully get. I think we're going to get better at hopefully anticipating what are key variables, but we're never going to have perfect causation and anything that we understand. So the, the, the question is more about usefulness to me. It's more about like, do we have an ability to at least understand the world well enough to avoid catastrophes. And that, I think, should be the benchmark for how our politics, our economics, and our social science navigates the world. It should be it should be goal-oriented to try to reduce the harm that is avoidable in the world. One of the best examples of, of not ever having perfect causality is the very fact that, that we as individuals or nations make the same mistake over and over again, which arguably we wouldn't do if we understood causes perfectly. Yeah, I mean, we don't always learn from our errors. I would say that for sure. And I think one of those that I, it, it springs back to the previous part of the conversation is like, you know, the financial crisis wiped out a huge amount of wealth in the United States and around the world. And then things go back to seemingly normal and we start to unlearn the lessons and embed more systemic risk into finance. And it's going to happen again, right? And so I think there is this aspect of it where... Um, I, I would prefer that we lived in a world that had more stability and slightly lower growth, for example. I'm not saying growth is bad, by all means. But I would trade a world where you have like 5% growth, but then catastrophe every five years with one that has, you know, let's say 3.5% growth, but it always is 3.5% growth. And I think that's the kind of stuff where we have to think a little bit differently. We have to think about the potential risks in our systems and, you know, make sure that we make resilience uh, a core 
policy priority uh, when we think about both our lives and also um, the ways that our societies are run. It's inherent in the notion of randomness and chaos is at the same time the element of risk. And the more random things are, it seems, the more risk we might be willing to take. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where what I would say in that is that when you have a, a worldview that is dominated by chaos and sort of the uncertainty of life, one of the best lessons is not about taking more risks, but more experimentation. I mean, evolution, this also calls back to evolution because the wisdom of evolution is basically undirected experimentation that comes up with really novel solutions to tricky problems. And that's why you have these crazy life forms all around us, right, from bizarre plants to bizarre animals and so on. And, and I think there's a lesson for humans there, too, that the way to navigate uncertainty is to experiment, to try new things, and you'll end up discovering something that works better for you. And so I think this is also true for public policy. I think we should be experimenting a lot more with uh, public policy because we don't know the answers to a lot of questions. And that was exposed really clearly by COVID. I mean, we just didn't understand how to deal with the pandemic. And I think experimentation was something that was really important where you start to sort of develop ideas and strategies and some of them work and some of them don't. Uh, it's much better than a top-down sense of control where you just pick one idea and do it. And I, and a lot of politics is actually that way. A lot of politics is like one ideology says we think this will work. One ideology says we think that will work. You elect them, and then you only try one thing. And we never know whether it was the best outcome because we didn't experiment. And we see that in business, too. I mean, bookshelves in in bookstores are filled with business books that will tell you this is the way to organize to do X. And in fact, it, it eschews that experimentation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, with, with business, um, you basically have a series of experiments through innovation. And then also sometimes they arbitrarily get locked in, right? So there's this classic example of VHS versus Betamax in, uh, in the 1980s where, you know, it's like these technologies are, are sort of experimented with, both of them sort of work. But VHS took an early lead in, in how many people bought it, and all of a sudden, boom, that was the end of Betamax. So it got locked in, and, and, and it won the battle. Uh, and I think timing is part of this. Experimenting is part of it. You know, All these things add up to a point of view where the idea of top-down control is simply a myth. And so if that's the case, then you know, in business, you're navigating an uncertain environment. The world's changing. You don't know what the next big thing will be or what's what consumers are going to want. You had better have experimentation as part of your playbook. Uh, and if you don't, those companies basically die because they're set for a world that then is outdated as soon as it changes. And that's the, that's the sort of peril of uh, not being nimble and flexible and accepting uncertainty. And finally, Brian, how did your worldview change as you continue to work on Fluke? Oh, it's uh, profoundly. I mean, I, there's, I, I've written a few books. This is the only book that's changed how I think about the world. Um, I now view myself very firmly as a cosmic accident, uh, which I think is is is, tr is true. And um, it, it's really actually liberating because the life lesson of a cosmic accident is to enjoy life. <laughs> it's, to, it's to do things that you uh, enjoy with people that you love and, you know, not to sort of sweat the stuff that you can't control as much. I also, you know, a lot of this book, uh, I wrote it after I would go on long walks with my dog, and I really enjoyed that. And, you know, it's one of those things where the ideas came. I, I wasn't sort of sitting in front of a computer trying to force an idea, exploring the world a bit more. I mean, I just stopped doing a little bit. I, I've dialed down the degree to which I try to assert control in my life. I've dialed up the degree to which I try to enjoy things and explore. And and I think that's the really nice thing about these, the philosophy that flows out of this worldview is that it sort of just frees you up to accept 
that you don't have the ability to completely shape and dictate the terms of your life. So you might as well enjoy the ride. And I, you know, I know it sounds really simple and cliche, but it's how I sort of feel um, after writing the book. And it's, it's made me a happier person. Brian Class, the book is Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you.